Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, Happy New Year. I hope you've had a great holiday season and are back with Government vs. the Robots ready to get your teeth into some of the big technology issues of 2018. This week, we're kicking off with an interview with Jamie Bartlett. Jamie is the author of the book Radicals and the director for the Centre of Analysis of Social Media at the think tank Demos. Happy New Year. Thanks very much for joining me here in the studio. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year to you too. And Jamie, this is the first episode of Government versus the Robots in 2018. Um, you also presented the BBC series Secrets of Silicon Valley, so I, I know you've been that, yeah. thinking about technology a little. Um, what are your, just to kick us off, what, what is the thing that we should be most excited about in 2018? What's the thing we should be most worried about in 2018? It's, it's always a time for predictions. I guess I guess the interesting thing at the point at this point is 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 whether the the general feel is optimism or pessimism, and I, I sense a great deal of pessimism at the moment about where all of this is going. And I think we saw the beginnings of it last year. I'm definitely, I think personally, far more pessimistic than I was even 12 months ago about the the, the way that especially digital digital technology is affecting politics, and I think a lot of other people are too. So. I can't really see that changing. Well, on that cheery note, let me try and cast you back to what I hope was a happier time um, and your youth. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And to ask you kind of, you know, you work on, you write on technology and you work on politics, Demos is a think tank. Which kind of came first in terms of your interest? Were you politically animated and technology came later or have you always been kind of keeping an eye on tech where's the well actually my dad was a sort of self-trained computer programmer I mean left school at 16 and started learning how to program computers and we had this massive IBM mainframe computer in our house when I was 13 and I hated it no interest in technology whatsoever and it was actually all about politics I just got interested through various ways and it was probably about 2009 2010 actually to be honest, the English Defence League more than any other group. Because I saw them turning up and thought, this is an interesting political movement. But above all, uh, uh, they seemed to be amazing at using Facebook. And it seemed to me they were a Facebook group with a small militant offline wing. And I got really interested in the way fringe movements always seemed to be ahead of the curve when it came to using technology. And that kind of pushed me towards this area of how you understand social and political changes through technology and then into these dark sort of weird underbellies of the internet, the dark net and Bitcoin and all the rest of it. And uh, it just carried on from there, really. The uh, 
it's kind of a given for us that the internet and social media are technologies that are changing politics. Yeah. So um, a previous guest, John Coventry, said that the internet was the big thing that had changed everything. And I think that was very interesting. And this is a theme that we want to kind of pursue. Um, but we know that the internet and social media have changed a lot of things. Which technologies have you seen in recent years that have really shaped politics? Which are the ones that have kind of cut through and affected people's political decision making that aren't the internet or social media? I think the thing that most people overlook is there's a focus on the specific tech. So, oh, Twitter's going to allow you to connect up to these people and just going to you know, disrupt journalism and self-driving cars are going to do this and Bitcoin's going to do that. But I think underneath it all, what we are seeing is a really dramatic change in, in the attitudes and norms of what people expect from politics. You know, that sort of underpins it for me. If you think of digital technology as being you know, a world where everything is very personalised, it's very tailored, customised to you, it's instant, you, know, you shouldn't wait more than half a millisecond before your web pages load up and you should be able to connect to everything at all times, whenever you want. This is a pretty fundamental change, I think, in what people come to believe is normal. And we look at that and then we, as our kind of lives as digital citizens, and then we look at politics, slow, boring, deliberative, I never get my way. And the two seem to be moving apart. And I think underneath all of this, it's that change in norms, if you like, that I believe is driving a lot of frustration, a lot of the populism, a lot of the anger. It's shaping the new political leaders we elect. It's shaping what sort of what people come to expect from their politicians who are struggling to catch up. And that's more than one technology. That's just about the, the changing, the kind of the way in which technology has just changed the infrastructure of our lives. That's something that I want to come back to. I'm very keen to discuss in greater detail because I do question whether government can ever keep pace with technology when the advancement of technology is about how people apply it. But one of the sort of starting ideas that I have when we started Government versus the Robots, our first episode is on driverless cars. Yep. And we're thinking, okay, well, if driverless cars hit the roads, what's that going to mean? It's going to mean a change in the conversations people are having about road use. So it's going to mean that drivers, pedestrians, truck drivers, cyclists all sort of start to consider political decisions and London election decisions around transport. Um, drones are going to bring big debates about security and privacy. So there, if we are in the realm of a specific technology, do you think there is one that kind of once the rubber hits the road, it's really going to start to animate people, not because it's a technology and it's affecting the body politic, but actually because it's affecting them on a day-to-day -day basis and it's motivating their political decision-making? Everyone at the moment is, is sort of semi-obsessed with artificial intelligence and uh, I've never seen a discussion that's got sort of people as as quickly interested in technology as as jobs and robots which is uh, which is amazing really because you know it's the, the issue's been around for quite a long time and and there's there is so much crap being spoken about this at the moment it's 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 scarcely believable but what i think is going to happen and what i think will will really drive a lot of conversations on technology is not whether or not robots are going to take all of our jobs it is whether or not it's going to fuel a massive increase in inequality in society i think that's the real threat i think we focus on this idea of you know machine learning technology is going to be able to essentially mimic human behavior so well because it can do all these different things better than we can that we there won't be a role for us anymore 
And while that, you know, you can sort of kind of argue that either way, it's quite hard to, to know. The real, I think, tendency of, of this type of technology, digital technology in particular, is to really increase the wealth and productivity of skilled people who can benefit most from it and leave an awful lot of people behind in more and more precarious jobs. And that might it might be interesting to see whether people connect that tendency, which we've already seen over the last 20 years, to technology and technology firms. Um, because a lot of the side effects of all of that, you know, growing mental health problems, depression, high levels of crime, lower levels of trust and confidence in politics, we know these are all associated with high levels of inequality. Those things will start seeping out and we'll struggle more and more to deal with them. And I think underlying a lot of that will be technological change. The issue is how and why and whether we can connect those things to technology because it's a very, very difficult and imprecise relationship. But I think that's, so to me, that's what's really gonna, they're really gonna drive that. We've seen a bit of it already, you know, the kind of sudden concern over the last six months, it seems, with, huge monopolistic companies and all the power and influence that they have and that's I think the beginning of a conversation about this but I think the next two or three years we'll really start to see how that's going to play out in more and more unequal societies and I don't think we're we're close to ready for any of that. So I'm interested to know about another uh, tech or innovation which is very zeitgeist at the moment and picking up on your theme of kind of the inequality that can be driven by the advancement of technology if we look at something like bitcoin yeah. which you know there's an interesting transition taking place at the moment where it's starting to be um mainstream big finances involved and a kind of sort of the 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 anarchy of the early days is starting to seep away but a lot of people from the early days are very invested in bitcoin you know do you think we're likely to see a kind of microcosm of the the power play of technology and how bitcoin plays out this uh, year yeah we're see- we're seeing it already and we're also seeing obviously spiraling off into uh, the other cryptocurrencies as people decide that there are different features of bitcoin that they want to change or or, or modify for particularly for anarchistic or libertarian reasons the, the bitcoin issue is interesting when i wrote about it in 2013 a lot at, when i wrote my book about the dark net and I, and I just wish i'd kept hold of all these bitcoin i had back then obviously i mean everyone's got a bitcoin story i bought a pizza in 2012 and it cost me a million dollars by today's prices the issue about Bitcoin. I mean, firstly, it's interesting what you said. What you said there, because there's an awful lot of libertarians and anarchists that have gotten unbelievably eye-wateringly rich as a result of the surge of Bitcoin, because it was all outsiders that held on to it first. There are drug dealers now that are multi-millionaires based on a few trades they did on the Silk Road in 2013. So, uh, the, the the ecosystem is funding itself. Because everyone that's got Bitcoin is invested in Bitcoin sort of intellectually as well, many of them. So they are spending money on building new applications for Bitcoin, which makes it more useful, which means more people will buy it, which means the value will go up, which means they have more money to spend on it. And it's this weird virtuous circle if you're if you're in it. Um, but anyone who thinks that governments will simply stand aside and happily wave goodbye to all this potential tax revenue are out of their minds. I mean, there is no doubt that this year, and I think especially actually when tax returns this year start start going in on the 31st of January, um, a lot of HMRC will be looking out for whether people have declared their Bitcoin profits if they cashed out as capital gains tax. 
because there's a lot of money there for the tax man and they're given how hard it is to raise taxes anyway i suspect they'll be looking very closely this year at who and how much is being declared and by next year i think they will have made this a major major priority so i'm going to ask one more question on bitcoin just for people who are still getting their heads around it uh what would be your what's your snappiest explanation of what's going on with cryptocurrency What's going on? Yeah, what with is it? it? How's it working? Oh, you know, ex- explain it to the <laughs> layman because uh, I, I still struggle. Uh, Bitcoin is a digital cash where anyone can simply own them. You can buy them at real world exchanges, but you can also mine them. That's another area that I think probably shouldn't go into because that gets a bit too technical for this, perhaps. But it's a it's a it's a way of being able to tr- transact very easily with essentially a kind of line of numbers which is all a Bitcoin really is. And anyone can have them and you can send them to anyone instantaneously. And there is a cap of 21 million Bitcoins that are the, sort of the limit of what, what can ever be produced. That's Bitcoin. Um, but like I said, there are several other cryptocurrencies at the moment out there. So many people see it as a very useful and sort of interesting store of value as well as being a currency, which is why so many people have started putting money into Bitcoin because they think it's actually quite a reliable asset class rather than a currency, which is what has fueled this unbelievable increase over the last few uh, weeks and months. So you've got this interesting tension in the crypto world at the moment between those who I think are seeing it as a bit of an asset where they can just put their money and it keeps going up in value and those who want to use it as a real world currency to buy and sell things and all the while it's going up in value like this its use as a currency is kind of limited because no one wants to spend it because it's so volatile and hence all these other cryptocurrencies that are popping up that might might play that role so we're going to take a quick break back in a moment with more Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I hope you enjoyed the ad. Welcome back. I'm talking to Jamie Bartlett. You've said you're pessimistic about 2018, but lots of people who are invested in Bitcoin are obviously very, very optimistic about 2018. I'm probably terrified as well because they just keep having to check the price to <laughs> worry how much they've lost or gained or bought or sold. What do we know more generally about how the public feel about technology at the moment? You know, are the public tech optimists or tech pessimists? Are they starting to get this creeping sense of kind of our tech overlords or are they seeing opportunity in some kind of Elysian fields? 
the British public are generally quite optimistic about technology and just over we did some recent polling at demos and just over half the uk adults said that they were optimistic about the opportunities that technology is bringing and that's a little bit at odds i think with how the newspapers are reporting a lot of this and that's partly because the newspapers have their own reason to moan about technology so but the public especially because they use so much of this technology generally speaking are quite optimistic about the the possibility of technology improving their lives in all sorts of ways but they're not optimistic about whether or whether the government is going to be able to mitigate the negative the inevitable negative consequences that that brings so if you like they're optimistic about tech but they're then then they're pessimistic about how far we're going to be able to manage the problems i want to focus down on some uh, areas that you kind of do your day job social media center for analysis of social media at demos and also your most recent book which i think the paperback version is hitting the shelves to maybe as we speak it is Um, is out today there is a kind of received wisdom that social media makes people angry and that that affects the quality of our public discourse. Do you subscribe to that? I think it probably does. Uh, angry might be the wrong word. I'd say emotional is the right word, which can mean overjoyed and thrilled and excited and delighted. But it can also mean quite frustrated and angry. And, and I think it comes down to the way that the technology itself actually works in the 90s, a lot of, sort of tech gurus of the time said that more information, more data, more facts and figures, more connection with other people would, would make us more informed, make us wiser. More information equals smarter decisions and more humane politics. But I think at some point, information overload kicks in and you are so surrounded by this tsunami of facts and figures and data and charts and blogs and comment and opinion that you have to start relying on heuristics to make sense of it and heuristics you know these rules of thumb that help you navigate the world tend to be emotional you know you tend to click on the things you already believe or you tend to see the worst in your enemies and the best in yourself you tend to cluster together with people like you and so on and so on they're human weaknesses it's maybe a bit unfair to blame the technology for that but i think the internet has resulted in this kind of daniel kahneman calls it system one thinking you know the the knee-jerk gut feelings intuition i think it's unleashed that into our politics and that's a direct function of us being overwhelmed with information and like i said that's not necessarily angry but it's not necessarily wiser and smarter and more logical i often find and kind of have a working theory that it's quite hard to be (laughs) to be progressive often means to be counterintuitive and you kind of have to go against your instincts sometimes sometimes there are human instincts that you need to override in order to arrive at a different decision about what should happen and with social media, that seems equally true in terms of you know how. What's your advice to people who want to go beyond their emotional default and navigate the plethora of information that's available on social media in a way that means they don't just build their own filter bubble? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a, it's a great question. It, it it is it is very very difficult to do because everyone thinks that it's some other schmuck that's subject to a filter bubble or an echo chamber, but not them. You know, everyone else is emotional, but not me. Half of my friends, you know, my, half of my Remain voting friends, they constantly say, oh, these Brexit people, they've, you know, they just voted with their emotions. They don't really understand the issues. I ask them about what they know about the European Union. It's nothing. They just voted in the same way. But they, everyone likes to blame the other people for, 
for the for the things that they themselves are also subject to. So I, I spent a lot of time a few years ago writing pamphlets for Demos where I essentially argued that people needed to learn all these technical skills about how to navigate life online. Oh, you need to know how algorithms work. You need to know how video manipulation technology works. Um, but actually, I've come to conclude maybe more useful is to know how your own cognitive biases work, the, your own tendency to view information more favorably if you already agree with it. To be very conscious of those things, I think is more valuable than understanding the technology. And then, and then obviously, of course, working to mitigate them. The, the most obvious thing is essentially to try and go and actually meet people in the real world with views you disagree with. And that's not that difficult to do. Uh, and then always keep in mind when you meet these people online as well that maybe they're not quite like how I imagine them to be. Someone once said that no one's ever as angry as they seem on Twitter or as happy as they seem on Facebook. And I think that's quite a good rule of thumb. Or as beautiful as they appear in Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so I had the pleasure over uh, Christmas of reading Radicals. Uh, and I greatly enjoyed the fine cast of characters that you had assembled. I found myself wondering or sort of assuming that you would say yes of course social media has enabled the rise of the rise of the radical or, or, or new radical groups in society is that the correct assumption y yes it has of course in in the sense that it's greatly lowered the barriers to entry into politics of people and groups and ideas that previously would have never seen the light of day or they they would have been very obscure you know you could be a, an obscure little group in the middle of nowhere in a little pub chatting about your strange neo-Luddism um, and, and no one else would have heard a thing of it. And, and, and now, of course, uh, you can connect with all other groups similarly and turn yourself into a movement. And then, and I, and I write about this in the chapter on transhumanism and then play to the journalistic desire to report on weird stories because journalists want cool stories and they want shares and Facebook likes to essentially propel your tiny set of ideas into a much bigger movement and I think that's partly what's happened. So it propels those ideas but does it make those ideas any more likely to gain traction? I think it does. I, I, I don't think you'd have seen either Donald Trump or Jeremy Corbyn or Beppe Grillo from Italy or Tommy Robinson from the English Defence League without social media. I don't, I, I, they would have been around, of course. I mean, Donald Trump obviously was around, and so was Jeremy Corbyn, but I don't think they'd have, they'd have been propelled to such significance. And is it just, you know, we, we talk about social media and Donald Trump, but I mean, there's obviously a lot of factors playing the yes. success of Donald Trump in particular, arguably Brexit, depending on how far down that road you want to go. Um, and the kind of social media conversations on Facebook, boosting posts, bots, spam content on Twitter. That's fairly obvious. Is there anything, you know, you've also written about the dark net. Is there anything that's been happening beneath the surface that actually it's worth being cognizant of when we look at the success of someone like Donald Trump? Interesting thing about Donald Trump was the alt-right movement. And, and, and that was a, that's a I, I think that's far more interesting a movement than people give it credit for, if that's the right way of putting it. Essentially, to me, I saw a lot of young kids who had grown up on 4chan, which was always a weird subculture forum. Kids that had grown up there um, who loved upsetting people, loved being offensive, growing up and then becoming part of a political movement to support Donald Trump. A lot of those alt-right people were essentially 4chan people and the culture is very, very similar. And so we saw this sort of 
weird, the way that strange underground forums can, over the years, when the people that are part of them begin to grow up into voting adults and really think for themselves, that they can use all the skills and techniques and tips that they picked up off these weird forums into mainstream politics. And so all the the weird bot stuff and the and the strange memes, this is this is so basic for people that have grown up online. And I think a, a lot of more older political commentators who, who weren't from that world just found it all very befuddling and confusing. And it's a really interesting example of how two very different worlds clashed. And I, I think a lot of people, a lot of a lot of people that don't like the way politics is going, are finding it easy to blame things on Russian bots and all the rest of it, which is stupid. You know that is not what's driving these changes. Um, but social media, I think, going back to what I mentioned about emotional politics, I, I think that is a really important underlying change, and and I think that's the key to understanding Donald Trump. He creates almost this sort of tribal instinct to be part of my team and cut through the rubbish and propose these easy solutions to problems. That's to me the logic of a, of a world in which you're constantly overwhelmed with information. That's not the same as saying, oh, misinformation's getting shared online all the time and idiotic proles have fallen for it. That's the different problem. I think understanding it through this kind of the tribal leader in an emotional political scene, I think it tells you a lot more about what's happened. So if you put the kind of social media framing around it, or you say that most of the people who've supported Donald Trump have arguably seen living standards stagnate. And if you look at it globally, they've probably gotten comparatively worse off in the last decade. Which would you say was more important, social media or the, their living standards? <laughs> but both of those things are obviously important. I mean, I th- the, li- the living standards obviously are crucially important. But I think social media helps explain the way that was expressed and the leader that was chosen to deal with that. And the counter to that, if you know, if you subscribe to the theory, it would be good to counter it, which not everybody will. But the counter to that feels to me like you would design a, you know, hope is the emotion and, and positivity are the emotions that you want to see counter fear and concern for the future. Now, if you think about hope, you very directly think about Barack Obama. And I think if you think about a kind of clear, compelling vision for the future, you could argue it's not been since sort of nineteen mid nineties and the era of New Labour that there's been a clear vision for the country. In the Hang UK. on a minute, what are you, this is what everyone says Jeremy Corbyn's about: hope, change. He he trades on that. They're, these are his words now as well, and this is why he is part of the same phenomenon as Donald Trump. It's that it's that emotional politics, and so I don't. That's why I see the two quite similar, and I don't mean that in a mean way. They're, bo- they're both trading on emotions in politics and they're both the right c- kind of candidates now in this world. That's an excellent point. <laughs> um, <laughs> Since New Labour, what are you on that? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, my assessment is that it also has to be able to... Sensible w- my ass- Yeah, exactly. Hope. My assessment Achievable is it has hope. to be able to work. <laughs> the, you We're not ta- interested. Achievable hope and sensible <laughs> hope don't go viral anymore. I, I guess that is actually... But that is a fair point. You know... You mentioned in your book that you have to you have to be attention seeking, you have to kind of be emotive. And actually the sense of achievable hope making it achievable probably blunts the emotional edge of most messages. Yeah. Um and exactly. and and how you bridge that gap between a really emotional message that is probably highly unachievable and an achievable message that isn't quite as emotive as you'd like it to be. Yeah. Bridging that gap seems like a big challenge for people who currently feel a little bit politically homeless. Absolutely right. It's exactly where they are. 
and and they're sort of stranded almost between trying to give the emotional hopeful messaging and the sensible achievable realistic politics of it and uh, uh, what i what I, I guess i greatly worry about the politics of 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 like uplifted emotion both positive and negative is what happens when it's disappointed what happens when it can't be delivered what happens when jeremy corbyn can't deliver a happier more equal wonderful society what happens when 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 donald trump can't bring all these jobs back that are going to disappear that the result could be just a a constant self-reinforcing spiral of even more anger and outrage and and that's the kind of that's my fear that's why i said at the beginning i'm quite pessimistic and worried and, and that's part of it is that more worrying than um if donald trump is not elected at the next in the, in the next presidential elections and his base remains motivated and supported all I can say is I remember when everybody thought that George W. Bush was the zenith of political leaders. It was the worst. It was never going to get any worse than George W. Bush. And then Sarah Palin came along and everyone said, it can't get any worse than Sarah Palin. And then Donald Trump has come along and everyone's saying, it won't get any worse than Donald Trump. It's impossible. I'm not so sure anymore that that's the case. I don't think there is necessarily a kind of flaw on how bad our political leaders can get or, or the ways that they are willing to do their politics and so I, I can well see it getting even more emotional even more angry even more frustrated even more bitter if you if you go over to the states and ask someone for optimism they will say to you that actually their institutions will protect against that kind of spiral of quality of political leadership that yes. you've just set out now it's a separate debate about whether they will or they won't but <laughs> you know you mentioned earlier on that there's a kind of there's a there's a gap, if you like, between people's optimism about technology and their pessimism about government. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think that at the moment that's probably with reasonable cause because if technology is being picked up and evolved by millions of people at a time and government is a kind of slow, you know, doesn't move at the same speed and actually, you know, how can anyone keep up with yeah. the pace of change of Facebook because it's, it's the pace of change of humanity. Yeah. So... Do you think have you have you got any reason for me to be hopeful that government's going to be able to get its head around this? It's more than that. I think you think about the big the big technology firms, the way that they can basically afford to pay all the best engineers to build all the best stuff all the time. Why would you go and work for Redbridge Council as a programmer when you could go and work for Google and earn five times as much? Who are we looking at now to solve the problem of climate change? Is it our government? I'm putting my hope in Elon Musk. I mean, this is the way that the way that our aspirations and who we, uh, how we expect ourselves to be governing are changing. The way that I see it is there is going to be a great turbulence ahead in how we do politics. It has to evolve and change in the next five or ten years with all these trends that we've talked about. It is so out of keeping with people's everyday lives. They're getting more and more frustrated with politics. Politics has to figure out a way of jumping up a couple of levels if you like and and being much more i suppose in line with people's expectations of it quite how it does that is very difficult because obviously politics is is an issue of negotiation and uh you know and constant deliberation and and i'm not this is why i'm pessimistic because i look at it and i think i wonder whether they're just two different world systems that are clashing and 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 i don't see how they can easily be integrated 
Any flickers of hope? I mean, you know, why does everyone want to finish on hope all the time? I think it's quite <laughs> important sometimes to be pessimistic because then your hopes aren't dashed. You enter into these things knowing that things can go wrong and you try and design your systems as a pessimist. And that's what the founding fathers did as well. So I, I prefer to be quite pessimistic, actually, because I think it's quite helpful. So I admire your pessimism. <laughs> do you see I mean, do you see any politicians that you think are really trying to get to grips with this stuff? I think there is a there's a mistake that people make that that believe that those who are getting to grips with these problems are the people that are good at Twitter or have set up a Facebook group or are talking about building web portals and stuff like that. The underlying problems are much deeper, and I think that is in a sense requires a lot deeper thinking about the relationship between government and technology. I, I imagine, for example, someone like Amber Rudd. Home Secretary is thinking about this all the time because it takes up so much of her day. She's not on Twitter talking about things all the time, but I'm sure within government there are a lot of people at a very deep philosophical level trying to work out how to navigate this world and trying to figure out how do we work with these big tech companies and what's it going to mean for employment. And you actually saw a little flicker of that in the budget where Philip Hammond's, you know, really, really, I think, put his chips on driverless vehicles and tried to squeeze out a sort of a new angle for the UK to beat some of the other countries that are on this. So there is thinking about what this is going to do. It's never enough and it's never fast enough, but it's not the same as being good at Twitter and setting up a Facebook page. The last question I've asked all of uh, our guests here on Government versus Robots is simply where they have seen positive change happen what were the characteristics or things that engendered that change so i know we've had a, a probably suitably um, necessarily pessimistic conversation but for people listening who want to try and do positive things what have you seen in your career you know working for a think tank um trying to shape public policy where have you seen successes and what have been the things that have lain behind that every single i mean thinking about my, my book radicals you know all of the people that have in the past changed society in some way, some small way or big way, have usually at some point been derided by other people as being, you know, their ideas are impossible, it won't work, it's dangerous, it's ridiculous. And it's through a combination of like almost insanity that they carry on believing in their ideas, they're quite stubborn, and they persevere and but they, and they and they they continue when everyone else gives up. And all the movements that I've looked at, the ones that have succeeded, have always been people like that. They, they, they that where, you know, uh, to, to paraphrase the the bankrupt man, as Samuel Johnson said, change comes very gradually and then very suddenly, and you have all these movements that have laboured away in obscurity for a long time, and then events change, and then suddenly they're they're sort of, you know, they're given an opportunity to make something happen. The neoliberalism itself as a political idea was a weird little fringe movement that a load of people in obscure academic departments were working away on. It took a massive crisis of the economy in the 70s to make those ideas suddenly popular again. But you've got to be in the game for that to happen. And so I suppose it's a it's a combination of stubbornness, perseverance and mild insanity that to me, has has you know, has, as what I've seen in politics, has really made things change. You know, I really want, I really want, and hope those people can 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 carry on even when they think the chips are down, even when they listen to this pessimistic podcast. 
they'll think, shut up, Jamie, talking rubbish. I'm carrying on with what I'm doing because they will be the ones in the end that will change something, not me. I'll just sit around and complain and write books about it. Seems a great point to finish. <laughs> Jamie, thanks for dealing with the puncture, navigating the wind and the rain to get down here to King's Cross. It's much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. Well, after that giant dollop of misery, uh, you'll all be looking forward to the next episode. And we'll be back in two weeks' time with an interview with the founder of Women in Virtual Reality, Marisol Grandin. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at Government versus the Robots. That's G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore Robots. We'd love to hear from you about what you think the big issues in technology will be in 2018. Otherwise, my thanks as ever to you for listening and to Cecilia Armstrong for the editing and production of this podcast. See you next time.